You know, some Christmases stand out in my mind. And so as I reflect back on my childhood, the year was 1969. I remember that Christmas. I remember my, my family sitting on the floor in the living room. And my dad was putting together the gift that we had received that Christmas. It was a Hot Wheels set. Not just any Hot Wheels set. But it had the supercharger power booster. Okay? How many of you guys ever got one of those? Raise your hand. Anybody? There's a few of us. Yeah, the rest of you were abused as children. Okay? So I took a little trip down memory lane this week, and I Googled Hot Wheels sets, and the first thing that popped up, I, it was unbelievable. It was the, that set. That set from 1969, that's the year it came out. I didn't know my folks were so cool that they were paying attention to the hottest Christmas gifts that were out that year. And I remember us putting that together. And, but there was one negative thing. I, I realized that there were like three or four like more expensive sets than that one. There was a double-decker supercharged power booster. It, it just blew my mind. I'm sitting in my office watching these racers going through over and I'm just mesmerized by how perfectly this set is, is working and this guy buying this stuff on eBay and, it's, and he's re, re, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta order one of these. <laughs> you know, things have really changed because when, when Pastor Ben was a little boy, we had to buy him a Hot Wheels set. Now, they didn't sell the, 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 the supercharged power booster at that point. But now that he has Levi, <laughs> Levi now has, he has Hot Wheels. Honey, we could find, a, we could find one of those and we could buy them. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. But you know, most of us have some similar memories of, of our childhood and a gift that we received. It really, it, it shapes our, our, what we feel about Christmas. But biblically, what makes up Christmas? As we celebrate Christmas, what is it? What are the, the real foundational beliefs, the core the core things about Christmas. According to Pew Research, they feel that there were four, there are four really elements of the Christmas story. The virgin birth, the magi guided by the star who brought gifts to Jesus, his birth announced by the angels, and then baby Jesus lying in a manger. You know how I know that Silver Creek Church believes in uh, Jesus being born and laid in a manger, don't you? Because in children's church, there's a wooden manger uh, in there and there's a, a, a doll as baby Jesus. Could somebody get some hay for that baby because he looks very uncomfortable? Um, as Caitlin is teaching kids about Christmas and about the birth of Jesus. 
But let me um, share just, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but this Pew Research study, what they found was that here in in America, there are 57% of Americans who believe those four elements of the Christmas story. And then they also determined that of those who profess to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, only 76% believe those four elements. And those are only the major elements of the story. What about those other important details that may not rise to the level of being the top four? And we've been talking about those this month. We've been talking about Jesus being born king of the Jews. We've been talking that he's been born of a virgin. And today I want to touch on the fact that he was called the son of David. So let's go to Luke chapter 2. Beginning at verse number one, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David, the house and line of David. I want to ask some questions today about Jesus being the son of David. The first one that I want to ask is this. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? We sing the song. We sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So most of us are able to put two and two together and and recall that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but what do we really know about the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Why was it important? Was it important that he was born in Bethlehem? Or is that just where he was born? The New Testament writers actually chronicle the events of his birth. I read about them just a moment ago in Luke chapter 2, but I want to reread verse 4. It says, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. We know that Caesar Augustus has proclaimed this census that was to take place and that everyone needed to return I'm going to use the word to their hometown. But in reality, it probably, Bethlehem probably wasn't Joseph's hometown. He lived in Nazareth. Now maybe, maybe his dad was from there. Maybe he had been born there. We don't know for sure, but he lived in Nazareth and he belonged to Bethlehem. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. My dad was born in in a a very small rural area. And the place where 
He graduated from high school. It's a small town called Ontario, Wisconsin. There, there, there's 500 people in that town. When I was a kid, there was about 300 people in that community. And that's where my dad was from. But when he was 18 years old, he left home and he went to Janesville, Wisconsin. And he sat on the doorsteps of the GM plant for two or three weeks until they got so sick of him that they gave him a job. And then he worked for him for 42 years, okay? And my dad lived in Janesville for 40 years. I always say, where are you from? You know, Janesville. My dad lived in Janesville, but really he belonged to Ontario. You see what I'm saying? That place, Ontario, is still the place where we go, where all the memories are, the, the memories of our grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and all the things that happened uh, as we were growing up. It, it's Ontario. Now, Janesville, yeah, that's, that's my hometown, but, but it's literally like my family's from Janesville, but really we belong to Ontario. They say that you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. That's sort of what I mean there. Then the Magi, they show up in Jerusalem and they ask Herod, where is the one that is born the king of the Jews? We know that Herod is very insecure. We know that he's the kind of guy that would kill his own family to secure his own position. There's this incredible disturbance. And let's look at Matthew 2. Four through six. It says, when he had called together all the people, people's chief priests and teachers of the law, this is Herod now that's called them together, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod asks this question that he's been asked by the Magi. He asks it to the chief priests. He asks the teachers of the law. And immediately they knew the answer. They didn't have to really even go looking for it. They were aware that the prophet Micah, 700 years earlier in Micah 5.2, said this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times." The Messiah was greatly anticipated. The Jews were looking for him. There was no question in their minds where he would be born. In John chapter 7, verse 42, John the Apostle said this, Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So why does it matter where Jesus was born? It matters because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem because that was David's hometown. And Joseph was of the line of the family of David. And God used that census to make that happen, to bring it about. The next question is, why is it important 
that Jesus is the son of David. Let me ask you a question. If you could choose, what nationality would you like to be? What nationality would you choose? Now, some of you, you're really, you really know what nationality you are, okay? Some of you are really aware, and, and you absolutely know, and so you, you, you're like, well, of course I would pick the nationality that I am. But I'm kind of a Heinz 57, okay? I, I, my family, we've, we, we're, 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 we just got stuff from everywhere, Okay? And if I could choose one nationality, I've already made my choice, okay? And, and, and this is not to, to uh, you know, this is not to the offense of any other nationalities, but if I could pick a nationality, I'm going to get myself in so much trouble here, I would pick Italian. A, a, there's one other Italian in the place. I'm just, Italians, they're just cool, okay? They're just, I would, I would pick Italians. And 10 years ago, our son, our, our, our firstborn, marries Amy Viviano. <laughs> that is as Italian as it gets. And in my mind, I'm thinking... I'm going to have Italian grandbabies, right? Does this not add up? I mean, can you see the favor and the blessing of God here in my life, right? Until my precious daughter-in-law decided to do the Ancestry.com thing. And she finds out that she is... Not 100% Italian. She is not 75% Italian. She's not 50% Italian. She's not 25% Italian. She is, and I quote, 1%. Do you know what her largest percentage is? Finish. God, God has a sense of humor, I have to say. I know what you're thinking. Taylor, how are you going to bring this back around to Jesus? Okay, work with me here, okay, will you? During the last week of Jesus' ministry, there's an incredible event that takes place. He is going to leave Bethany, and he is going into Jerusalem for the Passover. And he tells his disciples, a couple of them, hey, I want you to, I want you to run ahead of us, and you're going to find the colt of a donkey that's tied up, and I want you to bring that to me, and I'm going to ride it into town. And we call it the triumphal entry. People are standing along the side of the road. They're shouting Hosanna. They're taking palm branches and they're, they're laying them down on the road. They're taking their garments and they're laying down on the road. This is a royal entrance into the city of Jerusalem. There's an incredible buzz and people that don't know him, they're saying, who is this guy? And you know what the answer was? He's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. 
And immediately people said, well, no matter how many miracles this guy has done, he can't be the Messiah. Because everybody knows that the Messiah will be from Bethlehem. They were confused. You see, David had lived a thousand years earlier and God makes this promise to David. We read it in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, where the prophet, excuse me, says this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was a promise. It became something that the Jews looked at and it was a sign to confirm the Messiah that he would be born from David's household, from David's lineage. Matthew chapter 1 Matthew says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew makes a direct connection between 28 generations that separated David and Jesus, but he made that connection for anyone who would have doubted it, and he made the connection through the line. All 28 of those generations are listed because he was writing it to prove that Jesus was the Messiah under the leading and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Jews were anticipating this promise to be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be from the line of David and he would be from Bethlehem. Matthew was literally a witness to these things. He wrote the genealogy as proof. And we see it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. But it's, it's easy for us to ask another question, and that is, what does this really mean to us? Because maybe you're one of those people that says, you know, I, 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 I love the Christmas story, but maybe I don't really believe all of the elements of the Christmas story. What, what, would, it, what would it mean to me if they were true? Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33 Here's the angel of the Lord speaking, and he said, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, for his his kingdom will never end. I want to give you here quickly just four things about what this means to you and I today. The first one is this, that Jesus was fully man. He's referred to as the son of David 12 different times in the New Testament. We see that he's a direct descendant of David. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, provide us with his lineage. John the Apostle in John 1.14, he said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase, son of David, is actually a messianic title. It means this is the Messiah, the son of David. 
Jesus' line goes through Mary biologically, but his line goes through Joseph legally. And we see both of those lines mentioned in the gospel. And both of them lead back to David. Jesus was fully man. Secondly, he was simultaneously fully God. When we looked at those verses in, chap- in Luke chapter 1, it said that he was called the son of the most high He was literally the son of God simultaneously to being the son of David. The son of David is known as the Messiah. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This describes what happened to Jesus. Jesus was the word of God present from before the creation of the world. Eternity passed and he made himself into a servant. He was made in human form in flesh. He became flesh. He dwelled among us. He laid aside the benefit of his deity. He experienced life as we do. He experienced pain. He experienced temptation. He experienced joy. He experienced suffering. And in doing so, He was without sin. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, the people to my left, the people to my right, the people ahead of me, the people behind me, they must be people who no longer sin. Maybe you think that. But I'm sorry. It's not true. Paul said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I stand before you as one who is not without sin. We have all sinned. But Jesus lived his life laying aside all the benefits of the power of being God. And he lived it in human flesh and he was without sin. And then he died not for his sin because he had none. He died for ours. He died for our sin. The third thing, this third reason why this is so important to us is that God delivers on his promises. In Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist said this, and this is David writing this. He said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever And make your throne firm through all generations. Did you ever make a promise that you didn't keep? Did you ever do that? Those of you that are young and you don't have children yet, let me me help you, okay? Let me help you. When your kids ask you a question, don't ever say yes, okay? Don't say maybe. Don't say I'll think about it. Just say the answer's probably no. (laughs) Just get it out of the way, okay? Because if you leave one sliver of hope in their minds, 
they will take and they will build a huge foundation and an edifice out of that sliver of hope and it will rise and it will become the greatest promise the world has ever known. That's the way kids work. That's the way they work. When we, we don't have to promise them anything. We just have to be too tired to give them a straight answer. And to them, it's a promise. Absolutely a promise. God made a promise to David. It took 28 generations. It took 1,000 years for that promise to be fulfilled. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9, it said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Friends, God is a God that keeps his promises. When God speaks it, we are actually, we're, you know, we're, we're guilty of exactly the opposite of what our kids do. We, we find all sorts of reasons why God's promises aren't really for us, why they don't apply, why they're not relevant for today. But the truth is that God is a God that keeps his promises to us. He keeps his commitments to us. And what he has promised to you and to me, he will indeed fulfill. And Jesus, being the son of David, was the fulfillment of his promise of a Messiah sent into the world. Amen, pastor. That was really great. <laughs> Number four, God's kingdom will never end. Have you ever heard someone say, all good things must come to an end? You ever heard that? What they're really doing there is raining on your parade. It just means that nothing lasts forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is such a great, a great prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on, his, on David's uh, throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom, his promises, they are eternal. Jesus said not even the, the dot of an I or the cross of a T is going to uh, fade away. If God promised it, you can count on it. This morning, maybe you are someone that has been struggling with broken promises. Maybe people have promised things to you and you've been disappointed over and over again. And you wonder, is there anybody that I can actually depend on? The Bible says of God's promises that they are yes and amen. That word amen, it means so be it even unto me. We're in agreement with it. His promises, we can stand on them. 
they will be good and they will last. And his kingdom, like his promises, will endure forever. Friends, I want you to understand something. This world is not the home of those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we're just passing through. We're, we're, we're literally pilgrims. There is a life that is coming after this. That is an eternal life that we have promised to us. One of those promises which we can count on that will last forever. You might be disappointed by a lot of people, but I'm going to tell you something. When we put our trust in God, we will not be disappointed. He is the Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. His promises will last forever. Would you stand with me? Father, I just pray, Lord, for that one today that has been really, this Christmas season has been maybe struggling. Maybe they even wonder, do I really believe all of these different aspects of the Christmas story? And when it comes right down to it, God, what we're really maybe battling with is do I believe that God is who he says he is? Do I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? And Lord, maybe they've been dealing with a lot of disappointment and maybe they, they just think that God's just going to disappoint me like everyone else. Father, I pray that today, through your word that their hearts would be challenged that your Holy Spirit would, would just be poking at them today disturbing their heart to say this is you he's, he's talking about you he's talking about your heart he's talking about your disappointment he's talking about how you feel Father I pray that as we, we close that those that feel that poke of the Holy Spirit, that nudge of the Holy Spirit, that today they will say, God, I give you my disappointment. I even give you my, my unbelief. I believe that you are God, that you sent your son Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This morning, if you're struggling in any of those areas, I just want to pray for you as we close. I'm not going to point you out. I'm just going to ask every head to be bowed, every eye to be closed. And if that's you, I just want to pray for you as we close. If, if you just slip your hand up so I can see that, and then I can be praying for you. Yes, 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 thank you. Yes, you can put them down. Father, I pray this morning as we close this service I pray that your Holy Spirit will just invade these hearts today that have said they're struggling with a sense of disappointment and, and being able to count on people who don't follow through and sometimes that bleeds over into how we look at you. Father I pray that today Lord there will be a, a confirmation in their hearts that they believe 
in you, that they believe that you sent your son Jesus to be the savior of the world, the Messiah. And I pray, God, that today there'll just be a reaffirmation of that. Father, I thank you. And I praise you today. In Jesus' name we pray.